You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host from New York City, Ankit Panda. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Ankit? Doing well, Prashant. Good to be back with you after, uh, after a lot of travel, I guess, for the both of us. How was Thailand? Yeah, it was good. Um, you know, I got an opportunity to do a couple of interactions with the foreign ministry and defense ministry, and they're certainly thinking a lot about foreign policy with uh, Thailand's ASEAN chairmanship coming up uh, next year, as well as elections. So a lot of busy work for the bureaucrats there. How mm-hmm. was your trip to Russia? It was good. It was good. It was my first time in Russia, certainly an exciting time to visit since when I was there um the dramatics in the Kerch Strait were going down uh, over in the Black Sea. So that was an interesting time to be there. Um, I was there for uh, a, a track to interaction with Russian and Chinese experts on the Korean Peninsula, uh, sharing perspectives on issues there. It was, it, it was a little strange because there were no Koreans participating, which I think is a little strange, a little bit of a great power hoedown. But, um, but it, was, it, it was useful. Uh, it was good to kind of see the places where gaps remain between Russia, China, and the United States uh, on on issues on the Korean Peninsula, I th- and I think those gaps are are pretty apparent, especially when it comes to uh, you know discussions of how to move forward with pretty much everybody: uh, South Korea, North Korea, Russia, China, everybody except Japan of the old six parties supporting a a less than all or nothing approach. Uh, but the Trump administration and I think Tokyo both are still quite comfortable taking an all-or-nothing approach to North Korea, which, you know, I think is probably going to yield the latter instead of the former. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, uh, we'll see where things go. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that kind of perspective is really useful because, you know, as, as we'll, we'll sort of focus today on, on Indian Ocean uh, issues, but I do think that this is a theme that has pervaded a lot of our conversations, which is that um, at times when you look at great power, major power competition, there's often a tendency to look at it from the perspective of, you know, whether it's China, India or China, Russia, U.S. China. But there really is, you know, a value in uh, visiting these individual countries and figuring out where perceptions align and diverge from that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. There's no yeah. uh, there's no substitute for the real thing when it comes to uh, interacting with folks from other places. I mean, that's just really kind of the baseline for for what we try to do. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so today I. Um, I think what what we you know could do is we're in a process of you know significant developments in the Indian Ocean region as we've talked about previously on the podcast, um, particularly with India's neighborhood relationships over the past few months. We've had you know significant developments in the Maldives in particular uh, with the new administration there, um, as well as uh, and a country that doesn't get as much focus and attention on the podcast, Bhutan. Um, and both of those countries are going to be in the spotlight more so than usual uh, next month uh, with two key trips that are slated to take place in New Delhi. And that will you know, sort of serve as a, as, as a launch uh, for our conversation on, on the Indian Ocean in terms of the fact that this really will put the focus on two countries which have been part of this uh, alignment between uh, between India and its relationships in the Indian Ocean, but also this ongoing conversation we we have about um, India and China and their rising competition in the Indian Ocean as well, alongside other players. Um, so you wrote a piece uh, for us um, just just recently earlier this week about you know how these 
two trips and you know really shine the spotlight on um, India's neighborhood relationships. So maybe what we can do as a starting point is you know talk about what these two important relationships say about uh, India's relationships with the Indian Ocean region as well as its relative position with respect to China and, and other powers. Yeah, so you know I think the first thing to say is you know I think you're right to bring up China as a as a framing tool. Uh, certainly with both the Maldives and Bhutan, there have been um, different but but present concerns about about China's role. Um, the relationships that both of these countries have with China is obviously very different. Bhutan and China do not have official diplomatic ties. They have an outstanding territorial dispute. Uh, the way Bhutan conducts diplomacy with China is through the ambassadors for both countries that sit in New Delhi, whereas the Maldives has official diplomatic ties with China. Not only that, but under the previous leader, the uh, authoritarian-leaning um, President Abdullah Yamin. Uh, and for listeners who are more interested in kind of the nuts and bolts of the Maldives, we've done a few podcasts on this recently. Um, so uh, definitely go check that out if you're interested a bit in in Abdullah Yamin and what his tenure really meant for that country. Um, so not only did official ties exist there, but Yamin was sort of a, one of those classic you know leaders in the region who um, undertook too much uh, Chinese debt and uh, really pivoted the Maldives away from its historical India-first foreign policy towards um, towards China. So for New Delhi, um, both um, these upcoming visits um, later this month, I, I believe there hasn't been a date yet announced for the Bhutanese Prime Minister uh, Lote Shering's visit, but um, the new Maldivian president, uh, Ibu Soli, uh, is scheduled to arrive in New Delhi on December 17th. But both of these visits, I think, are are eagerly being anticipated in India, um, and for a, a variety of reasons. I think the Maldives one is getting the most focus because mm -hmm. the this has really been a, a topsy-turvy year for India in the Maldives. So earlier this year, there was a serious debate in India about uh, potential military intervention in the Maldives after Yamin declared a state of emergency under his tenure, democracy and the rule of law and human rights had been gradually receding. Um, so... There are a number of cases that we can point to. Um, it really kind of all took off with the sham trial of the former democratically elected president, Mohammad Nasheed, who uh, eventually managed to leave the country for health reasons, went into exile, and became a vocal critic of the regime from the outside. But Yamin really cracked down on the opposition, cracked down on everything, uh, to the point where the September elections, which we discussed on a previous episode, were really, you know, nobody thought those elections would be free or fair. Um, everybody expected Yamin to sort of twist the institutions of the state to ensure that he managed to win. But there's one thing that you can't really tamper with, which is the kind of historic turnout that the Maldives mm -hmm. saw. It was, you know, nearly 90% of Maldives citizens that were eligible to vote cast ballots. Um, and Yamin simply wasn't able to turn the tide. He tried to contest the result at the Supreme Court, but that didn't go anywhere. And lo and behold, um, Soli was inaugurated. So a big difference between Bhutan and the Maldives, too, insofar as India's neighborhood policy is concerned, is that um, Bhutan was Modi's first overseas trip after he became prime minister. Um, he went there very shortly after his inauguration to really hit home the fact that Bhutan is in many ways India's closest neighborhood partner, just given the depth of the security relationship between the two countries. Bhutan is the smallest country in India's neighborhood, but certainly it is the closest relationship India effectively guarantees Bhutan's security. Um, with the Maldives, uh, however, it's the complete opposite. Uh, Modi had never been there under under Yamin's tenure, and he went there for the first time uh, to witness Soli's inauguration. And Soli's inaugural speech um, did acknowledge that he would be pivoting the country back to an India-first approach. So obviously for New Delhi, this was a welcome decision and really a sign that, you know, when that 
intervention debate was going on, um, the the idea of India simply waiting and seeing was kind of what the government was doing. But I think a lot of commentators didn't necessarily see the value in that, right? I mean, it was either India had to act now or risk losing the Maldives, which sits just off the southern mm-hmm. tip of the Indian Peninsula to China. Um, but the wait and see approach effectively worked. Um, you know, democracy worked in the Maldives, and and now there's a, a pro-India leader who's going to be coming to New Delhi soon. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's a really good way to capture some of the similarities, but also some of the distinctions uh, between the two cases. I, I think one of one of the interesting points of conversation for for both of these visits has been, you know, what what are some of the among the key agenda items that will be discussed. Um, during the visits, right? So you mentioned in your in your piece, for example, with respect to Bhutan, that one of the uh, agenda items would be a new hydro project, power project that India is expected to commission there. And I think you know one of the things that we've been discussing uh, in a number of these podcasts now is that when you do have these um, periods of you know new elections, new governments coming to power, and there is a window of opportunity for certain powers over others, in this case, uh, India, uh, with respect to the Maldives, um, but also in, in, in Bhutan, increasingly, in the face of this new competition with, with China, um, it also does put pressure upon these powers to demonstrate the fact that they can actually uh, you know, f- either fill a void or actually serve as uh, an opportunity for these countries to meet their needs. So, in the case of Bhutan, you know, one of the things that um, has been referenced has been you know, the Bhutan's new foreign minister in an interview in in, in the Hindu, um, you know, sort of talked about how uh, naturally, you know, given the fact that there was that interview in the upcoming visit that. He was prioritizing uh, India and that Bhutan would continue to adopt an India-first approach. But one of the striking things um, re- reading through that interview as well is that, um, you know, from the Bhutanese side, there was a focus on a lot of their domestic economic priorities, right? Whether it's, you know, domestic revenues or, or managing the debt, whereas um, some of the questions were targeted more at, at, at India and its role and how Bhutan would, would approach India. So I do think in, in both these cases, we are dealing with, um, you know, sort of a, a natural thing that we see with respect to smaller countries and bigger powers, which is sometimes these smaller countries are trying to leverage um, various powers for their own security and economic needs. But these bigger powers tend to be um, concerned about what these smaller countries are doing with respect to their individual interests as well, right? So I think one of the things that would be interesting to hear is, is, is you know, how, how are these two things being calibrated, the individual interests of these smaller states, but also the interests of the major powers, including India? Yeah, so I think I think you've hit on a really important point, and maybe we'll talk about it in the context of other neighborhood states, uh, which is that, you know, the way that geopolitics discussions kind of frame a lot of what's happening in India's neighborhood is in terms of India versus China. Um, and in terms of, you know, when elections happen, certain leaders are pro-India, certain leaders are anti-India. That's kind of the framing that goes around. But really, I mean, it's always it's always a more nuanced um, reality uh, that, yeah, many of these um, politicians and leaders are, A, operating in their perceived national interests, but also in some cases, you know, their own personal interests in some cases. Uh, you know, maybe we can talk mm-hmm. a bit about that in Sri Lanka with uh, Rajapaksa's return, which we've discussed um, recently too. Um, but effectively what this has meant, and I think the way that we've seen this sort of feedback into Indian foreign policy in the neighborhood is that I think New Delhi's figured out that it's counterproductive to really push these countries to pick between India and China. 
um, that as a consequence of China getting as large and as ambitious in its foreign policy as it has become under Xi Jinping and its pursuit of the Belt and Road Initiative and projects in South Asia and elsewhere, um, it's really a, a failing strategy for India to a try to you know compete dollar for dollar with China, which is a, a race that India will always lose. So if that's the basis on which India wants to demonstrate value to neighborhood states, it's always going to come short. Um, so the other factor is to really, um, it, you know, work up the benefits of local geography. So India can provide connectivity in a way that China simply can't, uh, especially with, you know, countries like Bhutan and the Maldives, given the proximity in Bhutan's case, given the border. Uh, a big reason hydroelectric dam projects have been popular in Bhutan is effectively the country's um, one of the country's major export strategies is to turn itself into a virtual battery for mm-hmm. uh, the Indian Northeast uh, and for West Bengal. Um, by sort of offering to um, output a massive amount of energy, uh, you know, generate more than it will actually use domestically. Um, So that's a big factor there. But also, uh, you know, I mean, the geopolitics don't, you know, aren't entirely uh, left on the sidelines, especially in Bhutan's case. Um, You know, the last time we talked about Bhutan on this podcast, I'm fairly sure, was in the context of last year's uh, standoff at Doklam. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for listeners that aren't familiar with what that was, uh, last year... Indian soldiers, uh, Indian Army troops, and Chinese People's Liberation Army uh, troops found themselves at a standoff uh, on the Doklam Plateau, which is a piece of territory administered by Bhutan that is claimed by China, and India supports the Bhutanese claim in that area, and India considers that area to be of strategic relevance, uh, especially as um, access to that plateau grants China an ability to further penetrate south towards India's um, vulnerable, or at least perceived to be vulnerable, Siliguri Corridor, sometimes known as the Chicken Snack. That's the really, if you look at a map of India, that's that really tiny part of the country that connects the massive um, western part of the country to the um, to the comparatively less developed and more vulnerable northeast area. So that standoff really highlighted Bhutan's circumstances as kind of being sandwiched between these two great powers. So I think that dynamic is there, Prashant. And, you know, one of the reasons um, this upcoming prime ministerial visit from Bhutan matters, in my view, is -hmm. because um, the Bhutanese elections, uh, you know, just happened. And they didn't actually get a lot of attention. But in the lead up, one of the interesting factors that was part of the national debate in Bhutan, which is a a new democracy, it's a constitutional democracy, but still quite new to the exercise of sort of uh, campaigning and elections and all that. Uh, one of the big factors this year was sort of Bhutanese sovereignty. And it wasn't mm-hmm. necessarily couched in anti-India terms, but definitely I think there's a sense now in Bhutan that, um, you know, with geopolitics and with Bhutan's size, there does come a certain sense of vulnerability. So I think it's unsurprising that we're seeing the Bhutanese foreign minister in his interview discuss things like um, all of this, you know, the domestic agenda and how India can really help enable that. So I think that's where things really stand right now with uh, with Bhutan. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's a really important point to emphasize. The fact that, you know, during the elections, we did see that focus on, you know, sovereignty, diversification, and and how that, you know, sometimes we've we've seen in a number of these elections, leaders, um, particularly those who are, you know, running for office at a particular time, will emphasize the fact that they're trying to, you know, strike a new deal or a more independent position. Um, but what they actually do in office may end up being quite different from what they're actually saying on the campaign. So I do think in, in some of these instances, it, it really is interesting to map out what these countries and, and leaders are saying versus what they actually do when they're in office. Um, and so that will be, I think, at play in, in both these cases. I think the, the other point that you make that that's really important um, to emphasize is that if we're thinking about this in terms of countries and how they're trying to balance their relationships with the different powers, 
uh, it really is important to pay attention to what the strengths and weaknesses of each of these individual powers are. And you pointed out um, with India, one of their biggest strengths is uh, geography and proximity. Uh, it's been really interesting to see. I mean, one of the other things that we were seeing India do, for example, is with respect to the Maldives, um, trying to include it in some of the diplomatic organizations, like the Indian Ocean Rim Association, for example, uh, that the Maldives was admitted into. Uh, I think that you know this is a really interesting um, case where um, Indian diplomacy and and security and diplomatic architecture in the region is is becoming itself a opportunity for India to demonstrate that um, there are various areas beyond economics or conventional security where it can play a role. That's right. Yeah, and there are, you know other institutions that have come more into play recently, um, like BIMSTEC, that um, mm -hmm. the economic corridor has sort of been reactivated after a long period of relative inactivity. SARC, in the meantime, has been sort of de-emphasized, uh, given the uh, inherent contradictions that come with any organization that has India and Pakistan uh, as members. Um, so, you know, those neighborhood dynamics, I think, have been really interesting, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, maybe we can talk briefly about Sri Lanka. I mean, we've talked about this briefly in, in, in the podcast before, um, but how did, how did the dynamics that we're talking about here play into Sri Lanka and the very much evolving political situation there? Well, yeah, so the funny thing with Sri Lanka is that, you know, it's it's this um, it's this sort of coincidental nature of the neighborhood uh, during Modi's tenure, which is that every time one country is perceived to you know, taking um, a perceived to have taken a step forward in favor of India's interests somewhere else. Inevitably, there's a backward step, right? We've seen this happen in mm -hmm. Nepal and we've seen this now happen in Sri Lanka. So in January 2015, when uh, Masripal Sirisena um, unexpectedly defeated Mahinda Rajapaksa in the election, India was obviously pleased. It was very similar to kind of the Maldives outcome. Everybody had expected Rajapaksa, who was an authoritarian um, leaning re leader to effectively win that election either by using untoward means or uh, election rigging. Uh, but it ended up that Sirisena, who had released a foreign policy manifesto emphasizing that he would like to rebalance Sri Lanka's ties towards India um, and China sort of evenly, um, ended up winning. Uh, but now we're in the throes of a constitutional crisis that's still ongoing and the risk for violence is high, as we've discussed um, on, a, uh, on a recent episode here at the podcast. Um, so I think the Indian approach to Sri Lanka right now is, again, a bit of wait and see. There is a degree of caution here um, because, you know, Rajapaksa might end up sticking this through, even even if right now that appears to be a little bit more in doubt than it was a week ago. Things are moving pretty quickly there still. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, yeah, I mean, maybe that's a lesson that India takes away from kind of the Maldives episode. Uh, but also, you know, not to segue uh, but that's also a lesson that India takes away from Nepal. Um, the government in Nepal right now uh, is back in the hands of the Marxist communists being led by K.P. Oli, who is famously not the most friendly towards India, even though he does do business and recognizes that India is Nepal's biggest economic partner. Um, but at, at one time, it seemed like things in Nepal might have gone another way after the constitutional crisis there after the promulgation of the September 2015 constitution, when India sort of, I think, generally is seen to have made a mistake in sponsoring a an unofficial blockade and effectively criticizing regularly the Nepali government in a way that was seen as heavy-handed interference in domestic affairs in Nepal. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the lesson now for Sri Lanka from all this is that perhaps the best approach is to wait and see and to continue to try to keep up the institutionalized processes of foreign policy and diplomacy that exist there. Uh, right. But avoiding to really kind of, you know, mucking things up by 
by seeing, you know, by being seen as kind of a an overbearing foreign hand trying to maneuver. Right, absolutely. And I, I think in the recent string of elections in, in the Indian Ocean and India's neighborhood, so we saw recently the elections in Pakistan and uh, Imran Khan coming to power. And I guess the, the next one will be um, Bangladesh with the December 30th uh, general election, which has been talked about um, quite a bit. Um, and that's probably the next, uh, I guess, domestic political development that we're watching in the Indian Ocean among others. And, and there, I guess, you know, there's this theme about domestic politics, but also Bangladesh's role in, in, in the region. It's going to be, I think, chairing IORA in 20, 2023, I think, its oh. vice chair, okay. about 20, 2019, 2021. So there is that sort of evolving cycle, as you mentioned, about um, general elections and, and the evolution of uh, domestic politics there. Um, but I guess, one of the interesting things to to sort of reference here, and you pointed out uh, this be before at the outset, which is beyond uh, China and India, which we've been talking about here, there are other actors um, in, in the Indian Ocean that are playing a more active role, as we're seeing, you know, for example, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Indo vision, um, European states being more involved uh, in the Indian Ocean as well. So the U.K. announcing that it opened um, an embassy in the Maldives uh, quite recently, uh, so I, I think, you know, one of the things that would be interesting to reflect on is, I mean, what, what role do we see for other outside powers playing in, in the Indian Ocean as this sort of uh, Sino-Indian rivalry heats up in the Indian Ocean, as well as, you know, other actors trying to broaden out their strategies beyond just the Asia-Pacific or specific subregions? Yeah, I mean, the Indian Ocean is definitely, I guess you could call it a hot geopolitical region, right? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. the Indo-Pacific strategies... Um, I mean, uh, two big actors that I think are really going to step up their involvement in the Indian Ocean are Australia and Japan, um, both sort of as part of the, you know, the, the quad grouping. Um, it's it's not an alliance. It's not really even an entente or a coalition. It's just a group of four countries that share some values, and three of them happen to be allies, and they are all democracies, and they talk about things, and they occasionally conduct military exercises um, and their sort of networking trilaterals within that quadrilateral grouping, all of them kind of deepening their defense cooperation with a focus on the Indian Ocean. Japan has been increasing its deployments there. Um, China, as we know, for now about three years has been um, regularly deploying to the Indian Ocean. It has set up a base in Djibouti. It's conducting anti-piracy operation. It has a probable dual-use port facility under development at Gwadar, the southern terminus of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Um, so yeah, I mean, foreign powers in the Indian Ocean sort of go hand in hand. France, I think, is an interesting actor there, uh, as we've right. talked about on previous episodes. They have um, a range of territories across the um, Indo-Pacific, and they really see themselves as a major Indo-Pacific power. They actually have a massive amount of exclusive economic zone um, in the Indo-Pacific region. So they certainly see a role for themselves there, um, as do the Brits. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are um, a range of external powers um, that are playing a role there in the Indian Ocean. Um, you know, with, with Bangladesh, uh, you know, it, it reminded me when you, when you brought up uh, the issue of Bangladesh, I mean, uh, you know, Bangladesh, I think has been seen as one of the stable bright spots for the, um, the Modi government's neighborhood policy. I mean, certainly in 2014, you know, shortly after Modi comes in, Indian Bangladesh sort of set the gold standard for how to handle, uh, an international arbitration decision, mm -hmm. um, over their kind of maritime boundary dispute. They agreed to what the tribunal decided in The Hague and they implemented this, which is something that Indian analysts, you know, were able to point to after China refused to do the same 
in the aftermath of the July 2016 um, South China Sea verdict. Um, so, uh, so there was that uh, during Modi's, uh, I believe it was June 2015, when uh, India and Bangladesh resolved their land border dispute, um, which had been um, nagging them for uh, a couple decades or, or more than that. And uh, more recently, I think, you know, a lot of the issues in Bangladesh have been on the domestic side, um, notwithstanding the challenge from hosting um, hundreds of thousands of uh, Rohingya refugees uh, in the country's south. But the, um, the Hasina government's broader authoritarian turn and crackdown on the opposition. Uh, so I think this upcoming election later this month is going to be something to watch quite closely. Um, particularly if uh, it doesn't go the way of the opposition, if there'll be wider protests and potentially even violence. Um, so there's a new opposition coalition now that the Bangladesh National Party, which um, had recently was thought to be sitting out the elections, has now joined. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how how they end up uh, performing. On, on the Pakistan side of the ledger... Uh, I think you know things are interesting right now with the hubbub around the the Kartarpur corridor, which is really kind of the only real significant development that's happened in India-Pakistan bilateral ties since the September 2016 Uri attacks, which effectively led to a deep freeze between the two in in 2017. Especially as you know Nawaz Sharif was dealing with his domestic issues, and there was an upcoming election. And by the time that election was over and Imran Khan was inaugurated. Indian election season has effectively, you know, been in full swing. So the BJP is looking forward to the elections there next year in probably um, uh, late April and May. So, yeah, I don't think there's going to be any major developments on the India-Pakistan front, um, Mm -hmm. apart from this, you know, the Kartarpur corridor issue that's that's opened up and is being seen as something of a confidence-building stepping stone to potential talks after the next elections. But right now, I think, you know, things are kind of on a a pretty steady trajectory there. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the Rohingya issue because it's a it's a constant reminder to us that um, you know as, as we cover these various subregions in Asia, there there really is a lot of crossover right between these these various uh, subregions. So um, when there was a discussion about Myanmar's admission to IORA, for example, one of the points of opposition that was registered was the fact that there is this you know lingering uh, Rohingya issue, and that's affected Bangladesh and really shone the spotlight on some of the human rights uh, issues that remain in the country. So, I mean, these geopolitical issues um, and domestic political issues really cross over uh, subregions when we really step back and think about it. Yeah. And, and you know, I think uh, India's um, India's approach towards the Rohingya issue has been notable. I mean, India really hasn't staked out a, uh, a norm-based position at all. It's mm-hmm. been it's been quite, uh, you know, realistic, you could say. I mean, kind of, you know, kind of the similar approach that the uh, the meeting recently between Modi and Mohammed bin Salman received, you know, when Modi received Aung San Suu Kyi in India while the world was kind of condemning her uh, over her handling of the Rohingya situation. India really said or did nothing. I mean, it's it's really been remarkable to kind of see that realism come into play. I mean, India really does see Myanmar as, as a huge opportunity, um, especially um, after the NLD took over and Myanmar is kind of seen as India's gateway to uh, continental Southeast Asia um, and mm-hmm. to the broader region. So mm-hmm. uh, especially as far as the Act East policy goes, um, it kind of begins and ends with Myanmar. Mm-hmm. So before we close, Ankit, I mean, looking to, I mean, since we're, we're kind of ending 2018 here, looking to 2019, is there anything you're looking at with respect to the Indian Ocean and uh, India's neighborhood policy that you think listeners should kind of pay attention to or focus on moving forward? 
Um, well, so I think I think on all these all these countries, I think have a very interesting year ahead of them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, beginning with Bhutan, one of the things I've been tracking closely. You know, I spent a lot of time covering the Doklam issue last year and the Bhutan-China border talks. So there will probably be another round of border talks um, between the new government uh, and the Chinese side. And it'll be interesting to see if that goes anywhere. I believe this will be the 30th round or something like that, or maybe in the high 20s. I'm not exactly sure. But but they've had a lot of these talks um, over um, over two decades now, and there's been no comprehensive resolution. And the Bhutanese say they would like to get there, and so do the Chinese. Uh, but the concern on the Indian side has been that the Bhutanese will give away something that the Indians don't want them to, and Bhutan understands that. So it'll be interesting to see how the new... Uh, government maneuvers there uh, on Pakistan like I said I mean the issue to look for there is a you know how Imran Khan's relationship with the Pakistani military develops since that's always been a major determinant of how Pakistan approaches India uh, but also the outcome of the Indian elections um, and I'm not going to prognosticate about what's going to happen there that's a whole separate podcast for another day but uh, I think the outcome of those elections will you know naturally be a huge uh, a huge event in the region's geopolitics. Um, Bangladesh, like we said, we have these elections ending out the year. So I think we're going to kick off the year with potentially a new round of political instability, regardless of the outcome. If the, if the Awami League kind of closes it out in a blowout, um, you can expect the opposition to, uh, be upset with that. And at the same, you know, by the same token, if the opposition ends up performing better than expected, I think we can expect instability. Maldives, I think it's a bright new year. We can look forward to watching Ibu Soli implement his his bright vision. I mean, I think the country has problems ahead of it, given the amount of Chinese debt and other issues, but certainly a lot to look forward to there. Same thing with Sri Lanka. Um, on the other side of the ledger, though, looking for this constitutional crisis to be resolved. With Nepal, I think really looking forward to watching its calibration of its kind of balancing act between India and China. I think we'll see a lot more happen, especially on the Chinese side of the ledger. I think Nepal recognizes its reliance on India, but it's certainly one of those countries in the region that is actively hedging by increasing its relationship with China. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I think that's kind of, you know, the lay of the land in the neighborhood. Uh, certainly an exciting region, and I'm sure we'll come back to it soon on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think with that, we'll, we'll kind of leave it there for now. Sound good? That sounds good to me. Yep. So, uh, listeners, thanks for listening. And um, if you want to leave us leave us a review on iTunes, if you like what you're hearing, um, please do so. That always helps. Um, and thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more.